Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're looking at a sector that has long been overlooked, but now is drawing a lot of attention, investment capital and business model innovation. Our article is titled, Home is Where the Healing Happens, Uniting Medicare Advantage Payers and Providers to Create Value. My co-author this month is Matt Margulies, a managing director at Kane Brothers, focused on a number of sectors, including home health and hospice. Welcome to House Calls, Matt, where the bankers like you are always in. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here and uh, looking forward to a good discussion. I think we've picked a good topic at a very opportune time you know, to be discussing the material at hand. So looking forward. Yeah, me too. And you're an old pro at this, so it, this is going to be some fun. You know, in our article, Matt, we tackle an issue that has challenged the healthcare industry for a long time and in many ways created an unfortunate and frankly depressing set of circumstances for millions of chronically ill and aging Americans. Specifically, we dug into the misaligned incentives that impede home-based care. And as you know, most Americans, all other things being equal, would rather be cared for in their homes than not. And we've known this at least since the 70s, even for intense care like hospital at home. So that's the sad part of the story. But the good news is we also had the chance to talk to a number of organizations that have joined together to help correct this situation, this misallocation of resources, and improve the market for home-based healthcare services. So let's start by setting the stage for our listeners. And I can't think of anybody better to do this than you, Matt. Even though the problems with post-acute care have been around for a long time, this isn't a history lecture, obviously. So let's jump into the current trends. Why are payers and providers directing more Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients into home health today over traditional skilled nursing and other post-acute care facilities? What's really driving this, Matt? Give us the lowdown. Sure. And I guess to preface my comments, I'm not sure it's all doom and gloom uh, around post-acute. I think we've never been in a better position as a country from a healthcare perspective to provide top-level high-acuity care in the home setting. I can't remember a time where there's been more investment, more interest in the sector from both private equity and the public markets. And I think we're at a point now where, where companies are as sophisticated as ever, both from a management standpoint, a use of technology standpoint, and obviously from a clinical standpoint to, to provide good care in the home. I think the issue that we need to address is, you know, how do you get patients uh, into that care setting as quickly as possible? How do you allow the government and payers to pay a fair rate while also getting great care? And then how do you solve for the problem that the providers face, which is, you know, how do they get paid a fair rate for providing great quality care and not just on a fee-for-service or a, or a uh, episodic or per-visit basis, but also on the quality of outcomes and so forth. And so I think that really gets to the heart of, of the matter. And if you think about 
the trends historically, uh, obviously, you know, the facility and the facility-based care historically has been a major care setting for chronically ill and acutely ill patients post the hospital discharge. I think it's clear to the audience that the trends have been you know, very consistent and clear over the last many years, maybe even two decades, that increasingly patients uh, and their physicians and families uh, obviously want them to be cared for in the home for well-publicized reasons, you know, more comfort, better outcomes. And obviously, from a payer standpoint, it's a much cheaper setting. So I think, you know, with all of that groundwork laid, I think it's clear that the post-acute space is here to stay and it serves a very important purpose. With that said, I think there's fundamental issues that need to be addressed. And those issues now need to be addressed in an even more challenging environment, which we'll talk about being driven by both the hangover from COVID around staffing issues, and then also the federal government's recent viewpoints on reimbursement. Matt, right at the beginning of your great answer there, you you talked about the silver lining and that we've never been better prepared to take care into the home. And I, I completely agree with you from a technology perspective, from a monitoring perspective, from an intervention perspective. But it, I'm also shaking my head a bit. It's like when all else fails, go to the logical alternative. It almost seems like the way healthcare operates. And you did also mention COVID right there at the end. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that COVID was a real shock to the system. And because patients in many cases couldn't go into acute care or skilled nursing facilities and had to get care from home, that the system seemed to almost overnight snap into physician capabilities and people to do virtual visits, to do remote monitoring, to go into the home and so on. So (laughs) I don't know if you want to amplify in any of that, but It's been quite a couple of years. It really has been. Yeah, no, it has. I think COVID forced operators and providers to to really innovate and to explore, you know, alternative methods for seeing patients and for for providing care. And, you know, necessity is, is the mother of innovation. I think people were really put to the test over those two years. And so what came out on the other side, in my view, are more experienced, more capable, uh, more innovative operators who are operating and running these businesses, both at the corporate level, you know, and and at the branch level. You know, I'm not sure we want to spend too much time talking about what happened, you know, in COVID around referral patterns and all of that. I think it's you know, more important to focus on where we are today and, and what are the lingering effects or impacts of COVID. And not surprisingly, you know, the labor shortage issue is is really probably the main lingering symptom from COVID, which uh, we had all hoped and, and maybe expected to have receded some by this point in time. We're sitting here in end of Q3 uh, of 2022. And, you know, anecdotally, we've seen some improvements around staffing in certain pockets of the country. But overall, you know, there's a real issue still at hand. And while the admissions or referral patterns rather out of referral sources continue to to be strong for the most part, particularly in the home health space, providers are facing real challenges in in staffing those cases. And in the cases where they can staff, pay wages are all uh, much higher than they were before. You know, the cost of fuel obviously impacts that as well. And so it's unclear, you know, when that stuff is going to work its way through. But just when, you know, you didn't think you could face more issue or have to operate in a more difficult environment, then the federal government comes around and says, by the way, you know, we're also going to massively reduce reimbursement across the board, just to add to your headaches. (laughs) And so as we think about the guts of this conversation, 
population and and the various constituents that play important roles here. And we'll get to that in a second. You know, the need to to really understand the ecosystem here becomes even more magnified, I think, you know, given how how difficult the operating environment is and is going to become for a lot of these home health operators going forward. Yeah. On top of everything you just said, Matt, the other thing I've been noticing is that a lot of providers are trying to put the genie back in the bottle. They want patients to come back into their facilities. And in many ways, they're doing everything they can to sort of cut back on some of the innovation that was necessitated during COVID. But, you know, like rock and roll, I think home health care is here to stay. There are some barriers that we should probably just cover. You've already mentioned some of them, but go a little bit deeper on the payment mechanics that are going to make it a little bit difficult to get from here to the desired state as soon and as effectively as we'd like. So why don't you just talk about some of the issues with payment and how that's influenced this movement into the home and will, to some extent, shape how it goes from here on out. Yeah, sure. Look, you know, traditionally home health, you know, was a fee-for-service benefit only, as I think most of the listeners know. And I don't know the exact date and year, but at some point, like anything else, you know, the managed care plans began proliferating the market. And today, you know, the vast majority of episodes or of Medicare patients are still Medicare fee-for-service. But uh, we've seen increasing penetration by the MA plans every year for the last many years on a very consistent basis. And so prior to this year, Home health providers have, you know, really had to develop a strategy both internally and also externally on how to deal with higher percentage of managed Medicare patients. Those patients are typically reimbursed on a per visit basis versus an episodic basis, which is how Medicare fee-for-service is reimbursed. The margin on MA per visit rates is lower, in some cases materially lower than a traditional fee-for-service episode. And so, you know, we had this dynamic where providers were obviously more incentivized to take on pure Medicare fee-for-service episodes at the expense, potentially, if they had a lack of staffing or just the opportunity cost alone of going and admitting a a Medicare Advantage patient over a fee-for-service patient. You know, the trends and Medicis was one of the first to really embrace managed Medicare. Uh, at some point, the providers realized that they had to partner and work with the plans for a variety of reasons, the least of which obviously was to try to maximize rates by showing the payers that there were better outcomes from one provider versus another. The other is, you know, health systems obviously are a huge source of referrals. The health systems want to limit their provider network referral system just because they want to have it more manageable. And so they will only refer to providers in any geographic area if they are contracted with the entire continuum of of MA plans. And so uh, providers were forced to really go out and contract with the largest network of payers they could. So just when the providers were digesting and figuring out a way to work with the payers and still depending upon fee-for-service for the majority of their revenue, we're now in a place today where you know the, the federal government has come and proposed a pretty significant rate decrease, which may take effect in, in a number of different ways. It's unclear at this point. As of today, there'll be about a 4.2% decrease, uh, which is a formula based upon a number of things, which we won't get into on this podcast. But you have a situation now where you have a shrinking fee-for-service pool anyway, and a place where fee-for-service rates are now also coming down. And so you have you know, fee-for-service rate pressure, a shrinking fee-for-service opportunity due to the continued growth of managed Medicare, 
and a shrinking pie, you know, for home health providers to chase. And so, you know, more than ever, providers need to figure out how they can operate in an environment where they can't necessarily rely on fee-for-service opportunities anymore. So the need to find partnerships with payers has been exacerbated. And that partnership term, you know, can mean a lot of different things, but ultimately, you know, payers are going to have to work very closely with the payer or the providers rather will have to work very closely with the payers in some capacity to maximize rate. And the way you can maximize rate is obviously figuring out some way to have some sort of shared savings, value-based care model, where you're getting paid not just for the provision of care, but obviously you know, also for providing great outcomes. And while this need was was always sort of present over the last couple of years, it's even more so given the rate reductions that have been proposed by CMS. Yeah, maybe there's a method to CMS's madness. You know, Einstein once said that if you're going to play a new game, you need to learn its rules and then play it better than anyone else. And the game you're describing historically has been just a volume game. You do a certain amount of visits and get paid on a per visit basis and try to do them as effectively as possible. And unfortunately, a byproduct of that is you've got the principals, the the payers and the providers shadow boxing in a dark room, right? They neither has the information they need to make good decisions. The payers don't know who the good providers are and the, the good providers who know who they are, but they can't get paid enough to provide the type of care that can really reduce acute care episodes, reduce the number of visits to the hospital and stating more positively and enable people to lead happier, more productive lives. So almost again by necessity we're shifting from this volume game to a value game and better data has to be at the core of this so both providers and payers can behave in ways that enhance the overall value of what's going on and it, you know it's just maddening in some ways that ma providers were paying less for home health care visits than the government was they probably should be paying more because they're ultimately on the hook for the care risk of their members, their MA plan members. So why don't you just talk to us a little bit, Matt, about this opacity problem and and how we begin to break that down. Sure. So I think the problem you're describing is that you have a group of payers who need to get their patients on care as quickly as possible without fully understanding the capabilities of the home health providers in a particular market. And so, you know, at any given time, there are dozens and dozens of home health providers in any MSA, secondary, primary MSA, what have you. But it's unclear to both the referring physicians in some cases and then the plans more specifically as to you know, what are the specific capabilities of those providers, who is the best provider for a particular patient or life, as the case may be. And so you know, we're in a situation today where you know, there is a role for somebody to step in and play matchmaker, you know, for lack of a better term. That, that sort of void between the providers on the one hand who need help, as I said before, partnering and, and contracting with the payers, and then helping the payers identify who are the right providers in any given market there's a real role there. And I think in the right situation, both the payers and the providers you know, should benefit, which then should trickle down to the patient and allow the patient to you know, receive care quicker and uh, in a more continuous manner from their discharge. 
and then receive care and better outcomes because the provider is, is getting compensated for those outcomes. So, you know, there's some interesting businesses out there today that are working in that world. I know we'll talk about at least one or two of those in a moment. But, you know, once again, because of technology, because of the level of sophistication in this market today, I think there's great things ahead. And I believe that the providers and the payers have the ability to, you know, really create an interesting dynamic where everyone wins. The payers, as I mentioned before, the providers, and then ultimately, and most importantly, the patient. It just all has to come together. And that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. An ounce of prevention. Well, you, you had mentioned we're going to get to talk about companies. So that's that's really the good stuff, right? So we've seen a couple of different approaches to tackling this problem. The first and most obvious is to build a large regional or even national network of high-value providers that improve coordination, quality, and accountability. That's for payers to do that. Why don't you talk a little bit about what some of the big payers are doing in this regard? Yeah, like you know, they're either buying or building, you know, businesses that essentially create these, for lack of a better term, MSO, post-acute MSO, where they are essentially going into a given market, contracting with the payers on the one hand, and then building out a, a network of, of home health providers on the other. And this goes to the core of what I described earlier. They're basically implanting themselves, you know, at the nexus of these two constituencies. And the goal is to create a situation where the payers can both get their lives on home health service as quickly as possible with the right provider. And then the incentive on the provider side is obviously to be in that network, to be eligible for those referral sources. And then ultimately, as this model evolves, be able to not just get paid a per visit or per episode rate, but also be in a position to share in savings, get paid for outcomes, Yeah, which in the most ideal situation could lead to a place where they're actually getting paid more than a Medicare fee-for-service patient if all goes right. So, you know, some of the big payers have invested in this space. And then a business that I think very highly of that I think is worth spending some time on is a business that the Vistria Group, you know, recently invested in called PHCN down in Arizona. And there's a lot of opportunity here for this business in exactly what I just said. And as one of the more innovative, you know, businesses in the market and also as an independent, I think it's the largest one that is not owned by a health plan. They truly have the ability to be very impactful in this void, as I've described. And I know that they're working on some very interesting payment models to incentivize and reward the providers for both being part of the network, but more importantly, for the provision of care and the outcomes that the patients deserve. Well, United Health Group has probably been the most aggressive. I think they're now the largest employer of physicians in the country uh, in building the types of networks that you're talking about. Humana, with their acquisition of the Kindred Assets, has also been a big player. But not every provider wants to be owned by United Health Group, and not even a United Health Group can provide care for every patient in the country. So that's where these other companies that you're talking about can come in and provide the matchmaker function. And you briefly mentioned PHCN, but you can't really talk about them without also talking about Vistria and Metalogics and how they're qualifying providers, how they're using data to improve care processes, and how they're really trying to make that match between payers and post-acute providers in ways that do exactly what you were talking about doing before, which is drive better outcomes, avoid unnecessary visits to the hospital, 
which are terrible for the patients, but also exceptionally high cost. So if you can save enough by not having these unnecessary acute care episodes, that frees up some funding to pay primary care providers a little bit more, in-home care providers a little bit more, and they'll deserve it. So why don't you kind of walk us through the Vistria Metalogics PHCN story. Give us your take on that, because it's pretty exciting. Yeah, sure. And before we go there, I just wanted to go back to to something you said about, you know, United and Kindred owning large home health assets, which isn't always the answer for for every provider or health plan. Um, obviously, there's many more health plans than United and Kindred, and not all of them have made the decision to to buy a provider. And there's lots of large independent providers who are not obviously owned by health plans today. It's not the answer for everyone. Even United and Humana, who have large provider networks through Kindred and, and LHC, ultimately, once that deal closes respectfully, there's still going to be a need, a, a big need to contract with other providers. And then on the other side, you have the large regional and large national home health companies who probably don't have much of a challenge in in contracting and partnering with the big NA plans. They're on the radar. They're almost definitely going to be you know, in any network that a health plan is, is creating in a particular market. But where PHCN and that whole, you know, sort of role becomes really interesting is there are, you know, hundreds of smaller, either single state, regional or, or mom and pop home health businesses that actually provide outstanding care that just don't have the, the resources, the sophistication or the notice, for lack of a better term, to be on the radar of some of these big MA plans. And so, you know, companies like PHCN really have the ability to create a very tailored, bespoke provider network that includes not just the emeticists of the world and the accent cares of the world and LHCs of the world, but also includes the mom and pops market or the single state providers that happen to have a, an outstanding reputation and expertise in a particular you know, clinical or therapeutic area. And so I think that's the really interesting thing about this capability that, that PHCN can bring to bear. It's going to allow the smaller players the ability to potentially reap the benefits um, and allow them to operate in a value-based care world. Yeah, and and of course, Metalogics provides a lot of the data that fuels the improvement and defines the outcome and can really separate the better performers from the also-ran. So it all kind of comes together in an almost harmonic way. And, you know, I love these. What you're describing is an interesting market-based solution for a real market problem, this mismatch between payers and providers in post-acute care. And the marketplace is organizing through companies like PHCN to make that happen. Do you just want to touch a little bit on Vistria and Metalogics in sort of making the case for this snow emerging model that I know you're highly attuned to and excited about? Certainly. And I'm not an IT expert, but I think I know enough, you know, to be dangerous here. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and the cool thing about Metalogics is it's obviously provider centric, but it could also, the data that's being generated can also be used for other purposes. But, you know, the primary use of Metalogics and, and where it's the most valuable is obviously for the provider. And it's essentially, you know, a machine learning capability that manages utilization, 
and hospitalization prevention. In the right hands, it's an incredibly effective tool that both identifies patients that are evolving in their acuity or on the precipice of facing some sort of adverse health event. It also is integral in care planning. The next sort of chapter of what it can do is around end of life planning. So it uses machine learning once again to identify patients in home health that are most likely to benefit from end-of-life care, hospice and, and, and palliative and so forth, and then facilitates you know, the clinical team's ability to coordinate care around that patient. And then the, the last you know, sort of uh, module, if you will, is the MUSE capability, uh, which is really focused on hospice care utilization and allows the, the hospice provider to more optimally utilize care resources, uh, the nurse, the social worker, the use of uh, supplies and medications and so forth. The information that's probably most relevant to providers in the conversation we're having around home health is the uh, initial module around utilization management and so forth. But ultimately, as like anything else, post-acute is a wide continuum. And so the data that's being generated throughout the Metalogics platform is highly valuable to, uh, you know, to the post-acute space. It all just sounds great. And um, you're really on top of this. You know, as we were finishing up our article, Matt, there was some late breaking news on the home health front when CVS Aetna announced its acquisition of Signify, a pretty major player in home health assessments. Any comments on that you'd like to make, just as we're all still digesting exactly what it means? Yeah, sure. Look, the headlines and a lot of the articles that have come out, you know, I think had some misconceptions about, you know, what Signify is. A lot of the articles that I read and thought pieces, you know, called Signify a home healthcare company. And those descriptors made it sound like CVS Aetna was pursuing a similar strategy as Optum and uh, and Kindred have around acquiring home healthcare providers. And, uh, you know, Signify is a lot of things. It's a, it's an impressive business and a, and a unique business, but it is not, you know, a home health provider. You know, the majority of revenue that Signify generates is from in-home evaluations for the benefit of the MA plan, which is an important part of how the MA plan world works. And so the really, really the only in-home thing about what Signify is doing today, at least, are these evaluations, you know, and they're getting paid you know, a fee-for-service rate for the evaluation, which then obviously impacts the risk-adjusted total cost of care for the MA plan. So the way I think about it is the Signify deal was more for Aetna today, but ultimately, you know, CVS, I think, probably has a grander strategy about the use of the provider network that they're contracting with through Signify to do these in-home evaluations. And ultimately, is this sort of the first step to becoming a player in the home? Or is this as far as they're willing to go and leave it at just a, a payer you know, tool? So I think time will tell. You know, we've had conversations with CVS in the past. They certainly obviously recognize and appreciate the value in home care up and down the post-acute continuum, but they have clearly not made an investment in a provider. You know, I'm very anxious to see how things play out with the acquisition here and then where they take the business going forward. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's a bigger vision than just doing a better job of RAF scoring for, for Aetna. Artificially raising RAF scores, risk adjustment factor scores, just results in overpayment. I mean, it's amazing how sick some of these people are in Medicare Advantage plans. And so you do hope, and I actually even expect that there's a bigger vision with CVS Aetna to be much more active in care management and, you know, potentially signify can be a big piece of that. And as long as we're talking about the future, you know, Yogi Berra said 
predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Matt, I can't let you go without letting you make a big, bad, bold prediction about your part of the healthcare ecosystem. What do you got for us? Look, this is just one man's opinion, but uh, I think history is a good predictor uh, of things to come. The tailwinds of post-acute and the demographics, you know, support massive growth over the long term. And what we're dealing with right now is is acute. Uh, and I think there could be some pain and disruption in the short term. But ultimately, as the way I think about it, the longer term trends are massive and that's all supported by data. And so you have populations of people that are obviously going to continue to need post-acute care. People always talk about the baby boom population, but there's actually you know generations of Americans after the baby boom generation that are even larger in size. And so you know this band is going to continue playing. The other thing that I you know think about is how has the post-acute space reacted to transformational changes to reimbursement or or significant rate decreases over time? And if you think about you know massive rate cuts in 2010, a fundamental change in how therapy visits are retreated by CMS and then PDGM in, in 2020, the providers have all figured out ways to operate in challenging environments and then come out ahead in the long run. That's capitalism, it's innovation. And so I feel pretty good about where this space is going to be in three or four or five years from now. But I do believe that the next year or two, you know, could be challenging for some, you know, as always, the cream rises to the top. So very anxious to see how things play out uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah, waves and tide, the waves go up and down, but the tide is definitely moving toward home health capabilities, capacity, growth, all of that. And logically, that means fewer, higher cost, centralized facilities. And overall, I think that's going to be a good thing for the ecosystem, although repurposing those is is going to be painful for many, and many will fight it. But that's kind of what we're going through is the logical evolution of the marketplace to delivering care more conveniently, more appropriately, more cost effectively, more, you know, more in accord with what customers and patients ultimately want. I'm with you, Matt. That makes me hopeful. So roll tide. Thanks for yet another great discussion. They're always good with you. So I encourage our listeners to read Matt's and my article. Home is where the healing happens, uniting Medicare Advantage payers and providers to create value if you'd like to learn more about the topic. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.